Do you spend too much time on social media when you could be spending time with your family or writing that novel? Here at GetCancelled.com we can help. We can personalize a media strategy guaranteed to get you cancelled. Use the promo code for your first month free. GetCancelled.com Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben. Joining me today is Matt Booker. Matt is the host of the Concavity Show podcast and is one of the people behind the David Foster Wallace Society. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. Your podcast, it's been an inspiration for me. Could you tell us how you got into the world of podcasting? Yeah, sure. I uh, really appreciate you saying that. Um, the The podcast that uh, I should say I'm a co-host on, Dave, Dave Laird and I, um, run together now going on six years really came about because we met up at the David Foster Wallace conference in Illinois in 2015 and Dave had been to the conference the year before in Paris uh, and I was not there but I had been to the conference the year before in Bloomington Illinois Illinois State and so we had a lot of mutual friends when we did meet up um, and we got to know each other a little bit, but it was really a happenstance that we both got stuck at the Chicago airport O'Hare on a long layover. Um, and I had actually taken some of the time and gone into the city and bought some books. And I bumped into Dave at the airport and we just sat down and talked books for like three or four hours. And when he got home, he was living in Victoria, British Columbia. Um, in Austin, uh, he was apparently talking about this the long discussion we had had with uh, his wife, and he, his wife was saying, oh, you should have recorded it. I bet some other people would like to hear all of those books you were talking about. And kind of out of that discussion, he and his wife said, oh, I wonder if there is a podcast that's like centered on David Foster Wallace. The quick search reveals there's not. In fact, there was almost nothing even in Apple Podcasts at that time that came up as a result with David Foster Wallace, even an episode or two. So after, I don't know, a month or so, he got in touch with me and said, hey, I've got this idea. And I thought it was a great idea because I I knew that there's an audience of a couple thousand people around the world who were like me and would have the same kind of interest in just wanting to talk about this stuff. Um, I, I sometimes compare this in retrospect to like what we'd call in the US a shotgun marriage. I don't know if there's a term for it in Australia, but like we didn't know each other that well. And it's like we somehow just agreed to do this thing together. And now it's like, when do we quit doing this? I don't know, maybe never. Like we were just like this old married couple now who've been doing this for for six years. Um, and we didn't really know much about podcasting when we got into it. Um, Dave took on doing a lot of the uh, audio production at the first few episodes and neither one of us really knew what we were doing so i would say if you've never listened to the show don't listen to the first three or four ones because the quality of the audio was beyond uh bad or amateurish so they they got better i think quality wise over time but 
that that's how it got started was really just a chance meeting in the airport and realizing like hey maybe there's other people you know that we could interview and share this with you've just done your 60th show for that podcast do you have a few highlights you could share with us it's hmm. a good question you know um uh i think in 2018 we did a live episode at the wallace conference in bloomington illinois and that that stands out for me for a couple of reasons one we got to bring in um, charlie harris who had been the chair of the english department there and had basically hired wallace to work at isu and charlie is also an incredibly accomplished scholar in his own right of john barth and he has a great radio voice so he made a great guest and really you know he was one of those guys that i could only probably get to be on the show um if I went in person, right, and did it in person with him. And then shortly after that recording, maybe it was 2017, he passed away. Um, so I, I'm really lucky that, you know, I have that recording with him. And also at that conference, we recorded with uh, James Plath, who is the president of the John Updike Society. And it just happens to teach at uh, Illinois Wesleyan University there in Bloomington. And uh, that was pretty great. So that that's definitely a highlight for me. Um, and at that conference, also one of our previous guests, our friend uh, Matt Luter, referred to the podcast in his the paper that he did, and said something like it was uh, almost like the paper of record for Wallace studies because we had interviewed so many people in the field, um, and. So I would be remiss, you know, not just to name them all. They're all fantastic. Almost everyone who's published, you know, a monograph or something major on Wallace, we have interviewed or met and interviewed. Um, but another highlight I have to mention is whenever we started doing, um, you know, kind of what we're doing now, which is just interviewing other writers, um, not explicitly about Wallace, uh, Although I'm one of those people apparently who can make anything about David Foster Wallace, no matter who I'm talking to. Um, so I would say another highlight would be when we interviewed Nico Giacobone, who's a screenwriter and he wrote the movie Birdman, which won the Oscar for best original screenplay. Um, and he has a new movie out called John in the Hole. Um, and getting to meet Jim Gower, talk to Jim Gower, who wrote Novel Explosives, so that, that was a huge highlight. Um, and Dave and I had a list of like dream, like interview people that we would want to talk to. Jessica Anthony was on there. We got to meet Jessica Anthony and talk with her, Adam Levin. Um, but just everyone we've had on has really been so great. Um, and, you know, from day one, we've actually had guests who are not Wallace writers. Um, one of our first guests was our, our artist friend, Robin O'Neill. Um, getting to talk to her was amazing. She has a great podcast called Me Reading Stuff, where it's just her reading stuff. Um, so yeah, I would say those are some of the highlights that stand out. But man, talking about podcasts, I could probably give you another top 30 of those 60 that I really loved. One of my favorites was where you interviewed the narrator for the audiobook of Infinite Jest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he, again, a great audio voice, right? A radio voice, Sean Allen Pratt. 
And I think it was in 2018 that we brought him out to the conference as well. Uh, and we really got to, you know, hear just what a complex undertaking that is to make an audiobook. I had no idea, you know, the amount of work and direction that went into it. Um, and then you end up at the end with someone who really knows the book, right? Because they've read every single word of it into a microphone multiple times. So uh, th that's always a joy when you get to talk to someone who really knows the work. I have to say, going back through it now, uh, listening to that audiobook really makes me understand the novel even more than I did reading it for like the two times I've read it so far. Uh, I agree. And if you ever have a long road trip, let's say you ever drive from Sydney to Melbourne, you put that thing on for all day. And it's, it's so entertaining um, because he does all the different voices and um, really brings alive, like you say, parts of it that just when you're reading it might come across as a little flat um, or even things that you miss. Uh, and there, there was a big controversy with the, the reading the notes, the end notes, um, but eventually he did record all those as well. So you have to flip between two audio files to do it really, but it's a tough challenge. Like I don't know the right way to do footnotes or end notes in an audio book, but it, it's entertaining. I'm, I'm agreeing with you like a thousand percent. Let's talk a bit more about the conference coming up and the one you've got uh, that you're chairing in 2022. So you've got Amsterdam coming up in October, right? That's correct, right. Uh, and like I, uh, I was telling you a little bit earlier, the number of people who have expressed interest in going and have actually submitted um, papers and have been accepted uh, is pretty good numbers for us. So I'm optimistic that that conference will be a success. Um, and uh, there are there's a reason why we call the, the society the International David Foster Wallace Conference our society and that we have members in, in something like 38 different countries and almost every country in Europe, you know, there, there are people reading his work like right now. Um, so it's pretty exciting to, you know, get to meet some of those people and ask, you know, what, what is the story? I was just this week emailing with an editor in Poland and to say, okay, in Poland, what, you know, what is the history of Wallace being published there? People reading him, what was the reception like? Um, so I'm really excited for that Amsterdam conference because I think some people will, you know, be able to make those connections across national borders in Europe. Um, and I expect it to be mostly attended by Europeans. Yeah, I guess with travel restrictions, it makes things difficult for people to get to from, you know, different places. Yeah, yeah, you're not going. So. <laughs> yeah, we're stuck here for a while. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even New Zealand, I've heard. Yeah. Um, in the days before, you know, Google, really, you started that Wallace email list. Can you tell us how you got into doing that? Yeah, so it was actually started by um, some guys, not me. Um, I took it over uh, as the administrator in 2002, but it was actually started in 1996 um, by a couple of people who were on the Thomas Pension list, Pension L, and that was also hosted on waste.org. And some of those guys are super interesting. Um, the administrator before me was a guy named Dan Schmidt, who worked for MIT. 
and also worked as a video game developer for a game uh, called Ultima Online. And he was one of the main developers of that game and also left in 2002 to go work on a little video game called Guitar Hero. He was really into playing the guitar. So it's pretty cool. Um, but the Waste.org people who run it, they actually started out as like a vegan collective out of Minneapolis and just hosted all of these free um, mailing lists. And there's only a handful of them left and Wallace L. Pinchinell are two of them. Um, most of the other ones I think were related to Burning Man. And some of these people back in the mid nineties were also deeply involved in um, Burning Man. Um, and I, th I think it was in t oh, some year in the early to mid late 2000s, I wrote a, a kind of history of all of this. And part of my theory or argument in that paper was about how as soon as people could communicate online and use net groups um, in any kind of news groups, what they were talking about uh, was stuff like Star Trek and Gravity's Rainbow, because these were guys in computer science departments in nascent IT programs at universities. And they didn't want to talk shop a lot of the time. They wanted to talk Star Trek, Gravity's Rainbow, Douglas Hofstetter. So when you go back into the early archives, Gravity's Rainbow is there um, from the 70s. Um, and really Wallace L is a spinoff of that. So in 1996, your pension didn't publish a book every year, right? It's 10 years when you're waiting for a new book. So you sit around and just be like, what is the next big mega novel? How does it compare to Gravity's Rainbow? Um, all kinds of people got compared to that. And it's actually not a huge gap between uh, Gravity's Rainbow and Broom of the System, Wallace's first book, 1985. And so when that came out, there were um, some discussion of, of Wallace in Pension Notes, which was like a printed newsletter. Um, first, like Pension Fan Magazine uh, became a very influential journal. But when they're sitting around and talking about Infinite Jest in 1996, um, the, the subject came up saying, go get your own list. Get off here talking. This is not a David Foster Wallace list. It's a pension list. And they said, well, why isn't there one? So 1996, they started one up. And, um, you know, that's, that's been a while. Um, but that, that to me was where I really got to meet other fans and talk infinite jest stuff for a long time. And it's still going, isn't it? It's still going. Yeah. We had some messages on there today, yesterday. Um, you know, the traffic is down because I think a lot of the stuff people would put on there in the past ends up on social media now, um, or, the actual subreddit for r slash David Foster Wallace or Infinite Jest, those two actually are a lot more active in the past few years than they than they were before. Um, but it's still got, I don't know, a couple thousand members that receive those emails. Let's talk a little bit about your writing um, and the kind of things that you're, I guess, reviewing and, and the essays you're planning to write. Sure. So um, I spent a long time um, getting book reviews written and published and everything from, you know, writing, covering 
I would say covering whole areas for Publishers Weekly, which is a trade magazine here, um, to writing some sort of longer essayistic things for um, stuff that got published in electric literature, in the Dublin Review of Books, um, a bunch of other places. But I, I really had the freedom to kind of do what I want and pitch what I want and put things out there. Um, and I also spent, I don't know, some time every year writing something semi-academic about David Foster Wallace. And I haven't done a whole lot of that, uh, honestly, since the pandemic began, but uh, I do have a couple of works in progress right now. One, uh, not exactly sure where it's going to end up. I, I think I know where it's going to be published, but it's about David Markson and uh, aging. And I really love the last four works that Markson published. I mean, Wittgenstein's Mistress is amazing and I, I absolutely love it. But when I find myself rereading David Markson, I go back to those sometimes called the note, cord, note card quartet or tetralogy of uh, reader's block. This is not a novel vanishing point in the last novel. Those are all sort of one big book in my mind. And they were, three of them were published in one volume um, by Counterpoint Press in 2016. Um, so I, I'm, I'm working, I've wanted to do something with that and actually did something back with Tyler Malone put out the Schofield. I don't know if you're familiar with that journal, but, um, it, it was a, a PDF journal, really impressive, uh, layout and each issue was dedicated to a single writer and issue one was David Markson. Um, Tyler Malone was the guy who found a lot of Markson's books for sale in the Strand. Like supposedly after he died, David Markson donated his books to the Strand and they just sold them, put them on the shelves and Tyler's in there one day browsing and it's like, holy shit, this book used to be owned by David Markson and it's got annotations in it. So he went through looking for all of those books. And anyways, he's a big Markson fan and put out this thing called the Schofield in 2015, I think and I had a little piece in there, but I've always wanted to do something longer about those books in particular that, um, you know, all these years later, I still really love all of them. Let's take a break here on Beyond the Zero. We're talking with Matt Booker. Today's episode is brought to you by A Books. This week's specials, Helen DeWitt's The Last Samurai, only $75,000 plus shipping, or how about Knauskard's Some Rain Must Fall, only $77,000 plus shipping. All books come with a free gift. Find out more on the dark web. Welcome back to Beyond the Zero. We're talking with Matt Booker. Matt, let's talk about you as a reader. Do you prefer a hard copy or a Kindle e-version? I love print, print, yeah. Um, it's, it's tough. I do have a Kindle, uh, and I can kind of get by with reading on that okay, but like just reading on the same computer screen all day, it just kills me. I don't know, existentially. It's tough. I need a paper book. What was a gateway book for you? Okay, yes. Um, and it's still to this day one of my favorite books, and it's the book You and I by Nicholson Baker about his relationship with John Updike. And I should give the context for this. I've told this story, I think, on the Concavity Show a long time ago, but 
I grew up in far East Texas in the middle of nowhere where there's very little like literary culture or sit around and talk about books culture. Um, books did exist out there, but not in the way they do for other people. Um, somehow when I was in high school, I had heard that there was a really pornographic book coming out um, called The Fermata by Nicholson Baker. And the description of the book just stopped me in my tracks. It was like, I could probably quote it from memory. It's like Arno Strine is 39 years old and he likes to stop time and take women's clothes off. And that's the premise of the book is that main character, he can stop time, take women's clothes off. I was maybe like 15, 16 years old. And I was like, I'm going to find this book. And, you know, I found the book and I read it. And I think a lot of it, I just didn't get, or, you know, there was a vocabulary that was much more uh, over my head. But through that on the back of it, looking for his other books, maybe he's got one better. I discovered the, he had this other book, you and I, which my local library actually had. Uh, and I read it and it opened up a world for me. That's the book where I thought, okay, everything that he mentions here, I'm going to go find. And the voice in it was so authentic to me, so real, um, so strong. And like I say, I had no idea who he was talking about. I did not, I had not read a word of John Updike or Nabokov or Proust or, you know, Raymond Carver or Bartholomew, whoever else was mentioned in that book, but I wanted to because his, his voice was so strong. So out of that, I spent literally years reading uh, everything he mentioned. Updike, like I say, was a big influence on me when I was 18, 17, 18. And through Updike, I actually read, you know, Updike was a man of letters, right? T wrote tons of book reviews, criticism, essays, memoirs, poetry. And so I just went through Updike and read his influences, who influenced him. I just kept going back through, you know, that process. Through him, I, I read Borges. Through him, I read Nabokov. Um, and I think I could trace all of that back to me trying to read basic, you know, pornography from Nicholson Baker. That is a great so, origin story. That's amazing. Was that how you got to uh, to David Foster Wallace, like through that long trail? Kind of. Um, I, you know, I think... When I was in senior in high school, I moved. Uh, I didn't have many friends in town, so I spent a lot of time going to used bookstores and libraries. And I was really doing well in AP English, and I had to make a decision when I went to college, like, what do I want to study? What classes do I want to sign up for? And I wanted to do more English. And it was really there where I met a lot of my mentor, people who became my mentors and taught me more about other types of reading. Um, and I got to give credit to one of my favorite teachers was a woman named Beth Nugent, who still teaches at uh, Chicago. And she, uh, I don't know, introduced me to a lot of contemporary writing. I think there was actually a book called the Norton Anthology of Contemporary American Fiction. And in there was a story by David Foster Wallace. Um, and I remember not being that impressed by it. It was a Linden from uh, Girl with Curious Hair. And I remember just thinking like, eh, whatever. But 
later on that year, I went to the bookstore and they had copies of Infinite Jest stacked up like cereal boxes, like soap boxes. I mean, in a display at the tattered cover bookstore that was like six feet high. And there were, in my memory of it, there were people just standing around everywhere in the store reading this book. And I was like, I got to get one of these things. I go pull one off the pile. And that's really like taking home Infinite Jest. Um, that, that changed my life. Let's talk about what you're reading at the moment and what you're looking forward to reading. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, currently I just uh, have a problem of like buying books. I love buying books. Um, I buy most of my books through bookshop.org. Um, but it's it's really overwhelming right now because I, I probably am going to get three or four more books tomorrow and I got some today and I... But what I'm reading, let me answer your question, is this book, first of all, called Paradise Nevada by Dario Diofebi, who is Italian, but he lives in the US. And he did an MFA in creative writing at NYU. One of his teachers there, David Lipsky, who's you know associated with, with Wallace. But really, I discovered this book just by reading a New York Times book review. And I read a description of it. I was like, this sounds great. And I went and bought it. And I am loving this book. I'm almost done with it. It's sort of uh, about a poker player, mathematician, prodigy, online poker player who moves to Las Vegas, a fictionalized version of Las Vegas, I should say, and becomes a real world poker player and how difficult that is for him. But it's all set in, like I say, this kind of fake reality, not real Vegas and all these other characters come in. Parts of it remind me of The Lost Empress by Sergio de la Pava. I don't know if you read that, but it has kind of a similar feel of like, you know, there's like a fake football team there. This is sort of like a fake Las Vegas. Matt, I get the feeling this is going to be a very expensive show for me again. Oh, sorry. Uh, I I will uh, try to give you the top three. you, You make your own financial decisions. I'll say that. Um, also I got, I love getting book recommendations from other people too. So please make it a two way street here because, um, I've just finished this week, this book, the most fun thing by Kyle Beachy, uh, which is a nonfiction book. It's essays about his obsession with skateboarding and also kind of some problems in his marriage and uh, the combination of the two. You know, I don't know anything about skateboarding, but the the sort of obsession that he displays throughout this book, I just really loved. We we had Kyle on our show years ago to talk about his first novel called The Slide. But when I started reading this, I was like, how did this guy ever write anything but skateboarding? Like, clearly, this is what drives him. Um, and through Kyle, he recommended to me this book called A Shock by Keith Ridgway. Uh, it's just out from New Directions this year, and I just started reading it. It's set in London, kind of people on the fringes of life there. It reminds me of really kind of gritty um, urban characters who have emotional problems, psychological problems. Um, but really, it's, again, and from what I can tell so far of what I've read of it as a writer who really is able to capture you with that voice of it's just so compelling and readable. Um, so I'm really enjoying that Keith Ridgeway so far. 
Um, and actually from your show you had with Dustin Illingworth, Dustin mm -hmm. was talking about this book, Ava by Carol Maso. So I have wanted that book and I went and bought it and I just got it yesterday and I started reading it and it is fantastic. This is right up my alley. Um, you know, we all have different tastes. Dustin said something in there like he didn't really like the fragmentary novel. I do. Um, so this is kind of a fragmentary novel. And it's like, you know, to me, that's how life really is. Like, I, I've got stuff, you know, I was telling you from like 20 years ago that is still in progress. Um, you know, things, communities that I've been involved in, stories that are ongoing for 20 years. How do you capture that in, in, in writing? It's hard. Like, I think you can only really get this tiny little piece of it. So I think that's what I like about you know, Marxons of kind of fragmentary novelists. Um, so I think that's probably it. I will say I got one other recommendation um, off Twitter that I just bought this book, House of All Nations by Christina Stead, who I believe is an Australian writer. Hmm. Or, no, she's England. Maybe she's... No, she's Australian. She's Australian, but she lived in the US or England. I don't know. But um, The Man Who Loved Children, Wallace and Franzen both recommended that book. Um, but this is a little more i think about uh finance and i started reading this book and being like this is very mature work i'm not sure that i'm up for it yet I, I might not be smart enough for this book but hopefully i am um but again i, I just cracked the spine on that one uh, recently so that's that's really what's like on my uh bedside table where i keep my my books in process, I would say my to be read pile is like all over the house, but that's what I have close at hand. You've got two young kids at home, don't you? That's right. Yeah. Start school tomorrow. Wow. How does, how do you get your reading and podcasting done with the kids around? <sighs> well, usually late at night um, or early in the morning. I mean, that's really the only two options that I have. And when they're in school, you know, I'm up early and I sort of have a window of time after I get them to school before I start my day job um, in which I try to either do some reading or writing and a lot on the weekends too. Um, you know, I, I like probably most people, I have this struggle of like, oh, it's been a long week. I just want to sit around and relax and read a book, but I also have tons of shit to do. And so I've, am I going to be feel guilty? Am I, am I going to be able to read? Um, it's tough, you know, and I try to build in a lot of my annual calendar of time away from the house. Cause I do find whenever I'm, you know, at a hotel or on, on vacation or something that I can read again, it's been tough to do that during COVID. Um, but it's a struggle. I don't know. Stay up late at night by myself usually. We'll take a quick break here and come back with Matt's Top 10. This episode of Beyond the Zero is brought to you by Dick's Pizza. You haven't eaten pizza till you've eaten Dick's. Welcome back to Beyond the Zero. We're talking to Matt Booker and it's time to do Matt's Top 10. All right, number 10, I have Paul Bowles, The Sheltering Sky. Um, have you read this book? Are you familiar with it? I have not read that okay. book and I've not heard of it. 
Okay, Paul Bowles um, is an American writer who moved to Tangiers and lived in Morocco most of his adult life. He's married to the writer Jane Bowles, although they had complex marriage to say the least. Um, and this book is really about a married couple who are traveling with a friend um, and they're in Africa and they are sort of oblivious to the problems around them. And there are a lot of problems going on between them and their lives are sort of slowly falling apart. It's a very existential book in a lot of ways. Uh, but I discovered this book whenever I was an undergraduate in college and I've reread it several times. And each time I reread it, it's one of those books where you notice different things each time you reread it or certain passages of it hit you in different ways. And like parts of it, last time I reread this book, I didn't even remember um, some of the just sheer beauty of uh, descriptions of regret, descriptions of uh, fighting in a marriage, uh, which are very restrained, as you can imagine. I think this book was written in the 1930s, 1940s. Um, so anyways, fantastic book. And again, one that I want to reread, even though I've read it before. And one that, you know, I think, even though they made it into a movie, it's gotten plenty of recognition. It's just a book that I love. All right, number nine, I put in Moby Dick by Herman Melville. And uh, again, I don't know if I need to sell you on this. It's a great American novel. I think that this is it. Uh, it's a funny book. Uh, this is something I was going to mention earlier, but when you're talking about writing, it's just that, like, I try not to take myself too seriously. Like, I'm not trying to go out and win National Book Critics Circle Award and criticism or not trying to get tenure, my PhD job or whatever. Um, I love that Herman Melville wrote this book kind of in that way and that he is putting some humor in there. He's putting his obsessions in there. This is what I was saying with skateboarding. is like, he doesn't give a shit if you know anything about it or not. He's going to write about it in a way that he cares about. Um, so I, I love Moby Dick and uh, would happily join any book club in process that was going to talk about a particular chapter on it. All right, where, where are we at now? Number eight. Number, number eight. Um, okay, number eight is... Uh, a bit of a departure for me and not a bit of a departure. It's a bit of a departure from my previous list where I had cheated and put a whole of John Updike's rabbit books as one entry because they were published as one book. But really, I for this list, I narrowed it down to the one of those books that I like the best. It's called Rabbit is Rich. And if you haven't read the rabbit books have you read any of them yes that's number yeah. three in the series isn't it oh sure yeah. it's number three in the series mm -hmm. uh it's in the early 1980s they all sort of take place at the beginning of a new decade so there's 60s 70s 80s 90s um this is the, the 80s book and to me this is you know updike at the top of his game and that he's in the middle of this story and you can tell that he is having fun writing this book and watching these characters really just push them to their limit like their lives are in turmoil and yet rabbit angstrom the hero is is rich he's doing well he is having a midlife crisis almost in every book but uh in this book uh i just feel that there are so many memorable parts for me um i like them all i really like the the last one too rabbit at rest but 
I would put Rabbit is Rich at the one that I want to reread. That scene at the end of, of um, Rabbit at Rest is one of the most heart-wrenching kind of scenes in fiction, I think. In the hospital, where he's in the hospital? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, you can tell that he uh, really loved the character by the end of it. You know, the character became an extension of the writer in a lot of ways, even though pretty different. Um, yeah, I, I really love I read that book probably 2018, Rabbit at Rest. I actually read it on the Kindle. And, um, you know, I have more appreciation as, as you age. Again, it's something he probably wrote in his um, late 50s. And I'm sure that it would hit different for me talking about physical ailments, talking about disappointment in your children, talking about your long kind of failed marriage. Um, I'm sure that feels different at 59 than it does at 39 or 49. But uh, that's part of the beauty of those books is you can sort of age with the characters and the writer. So um, again, not in fashion. Uh, I'm a member of John Updike Society. They actually publish an amazing journal, John Updike Review. Um, which I have the new copy over here it just came out it was a great article in there actually about tennis. Um, not in fashion, I don't really care. Um, not popular. I don't really care. There's a lot of other people like me who do care about his books. So I like talking to them. Um, so that's eight. Number seven for me. Uh, I almost put you and I here because uh, we were talking about Nicholson Baker, but as a long story backstory i switched it out with another favorite book of mine which is uh, one of my all-time favorite books that i do want to reread again soon is survival in auschwitz by primo levy and you know i, I have raved about this book a lot uh, it's a book that sometimes is signed in schools here so i think it's discounted a bit um but it's a book that i think of a lot i mean levy became you know a, a tremendous fiction writer um, and mathematician and a, or a chemist and essayist, but his memoirs about Auschwitz, there are three of them, are all incredible, but the one, if I were to recommend or to reread, um, is Survival in Auschwitz. Uh, and I think, I think it is the best uh, of the Holocaust memoirs that I have read. It's the one that I think, I don't know, captures the most of like the human spirit. Not, not, not to say anything less of the other ones, but this is the one that's on my list. Uh, so I, I really love that book. Again, I, I'm like all over the place, Ben. Like I'll read fiction, nonfiction, graphic novels. Like I, I read all kinds of different stuff. So to me, it's just like, what is the best writing? And um, so this is not a novel, but it's on my list. Um, so that's seven. Um, number six for me is a book that I've raved about a lot on the concavity show called Binary Star by Sarah Gerard. It's a very short book. It's her first book. Um, she's written a couple of other books since. She's got a couple of other books coming out. But uh, I think that's easier to pitch this book too because it's so short. And it is half, not half, mostly about a kind of a toxic relationship plays out on a road trip between a woman who is an anorexic and a man who's an alcoholic and their demons are sort of battling each other out just as 
the rest of the book is about like astrophysics and the way that two binary stars need each other to uh, orbit each other. And there's this reaction that happens, um, you know, in between that space in between the, the binary star system. So there's some like actual astrophysics in the book as well. Number five for me is uh, Iris Murdoch, A Severed Head. And uh, this book, if you have not read it, it has like one of the mother of all twists at the end of this book. Uh, I think Iris Murdoch is one of the best 20th century novelists of all time. She's amazing. Um, and this is the book of hers that I think is super well crafted. All of her books are well crafted, but just some that you resonate with better or you can sort of visualize better sort of realistic story it's not some of her work can be fantastical this is not that uh, and it's not overly psychological there's actual it's almost like a stage play right where there's you watch the action um and, and an interesting thing about this book too is there's not much uh, going on in terms of non-story stuff like these people don't worry about money they don't worry about anything else except for the relationship that they're dealing with so it's a very like focused and short book number four for me uh again last time i did this exercise i kind of cheated and put all of markson's tetralogy as one big book because it was published three of them were published together but since more and i've been working on this project uh i've come to see the books as quite distinct. And of the four that I have reread now multiple times, the one that I really think is the best is Vanishing Point. So number four for me is Vanishing Point by David Markson. Um, in Reader's Block, he's sort of figuring out this form and there's a lot more of the passages that are him still trying to invent a character between himself and the narrator. Um, this is not a novel. There's some more abandoning of that but by vanishing point he's given up on everything he's he knows exactly what he wants to do and then the last novel is a little more like a lament and maybe even hinting at suicide at the end which i didn't love um so i love all of the books but vanishing point i think is the best of those so i put number four vanishing point um, my number three is 2666 by Roberto Bolaño, again, on a lot of people's lists, but when I read this book, when it came out, I was just completely in awe and enraptured, and I loved the structure of the five parts. Um, I, you know, the, the first part about the critics, we've talked already, I've spent time at academic conferences and like seeing the sort of petty bullshit that goes on between different um, academics I could totally relate to. Um, I also have like a weird obsession with Mexico City um, and that I love to read anything set in Mexico City and Bologna is like master of this, um, even though I've never been there. I'm hoping to go next year, but it's like one of those places where you read about and you're just like, I want to go there someday. Um, and I, you know, I put up a whole Bologna website. I'm actually in the process of redoing it. It's called Bologna, BolanoBolano.com. I'm changing it to .org, but don't, don't go visit it right now. It's in process. But back in 2008, we did a bunch of group reads together. That really enhanced my reading of the book. 
Um, I learned a lot from that process that helped me when I went back uh, recently in the past couple of years, I actually read it starting at the part about fate. So I really like, some people don't like the part about Amalfitano, the part about fate. I really love the part about fate. Um, and I compared that with a stage production that was done in Chicago. Uh, really also, like you were saying with the audiobook of Infinite Jest can give you a different viewpoint on it. Watching stage production of 2666 was pretty, pretty weird, um, but, but, you know, eye-opening in a lot of ways. Um, I really love the first half of Savage Detectives as well. Um, the middle part, less so. Uh, I do like it. I would reread it. But to me, as a complete project, 2666 is the masterpiece of, of Bologna. Um, all right, number two on my list was actually number one on my list last time I did it, and that is Novel Explosives by Jim Gower. And, you know, this is a book that I discovered from listening to a podcast, which was Michael Silverblatt and Bookworm, and he had Jim Gower on, I think in December of 2016, and I remember listening to it and just thinking like, damn, this sounds like right up my alley, like some kind of maximalist novel set in Mexico. Um, you know, and, and Gower's super smart. He's got all of this um, venture capital experience. He's also a poet. Uh, and I bought the book and the parts of it that I, I read at first, I was like, damn, this is really good. I put it down for like six months and then read it in the summer of 2017. And um, I, I'm always looking for like, what is the, you know, people ask me this all the time. I've read Infinite Jest, like what, recommend me a book because you know I like Infinite Jest. And, you know, I could go through the list of like, okay, did you read, you know, Pynchon, Volman, Sergio de la Pava, House of Leaves, Don DeLillo. Like people are always asking, okay, I've read all of that. What's another thing? And that search, you know, it's sort of like what I was saying about the pension list. Like what's the next big like maximalist, encyclopedic novel and to me one of the best if not the best since infinite jest or 2666 is this is novel explosives um and I, I love it that much i know there's some people who don't love it and that's fine it's people who hate every single book i've mentioned on here we don't taste is subjective you know but for me um this ticked a lot of boxes and you had uh jim on your show as well didn't you that was an absolute pleasure. Um, like I said, a real highlight to um, get to talk with him. And actually the following summer in 2019 convinced him to like come down here to Austin and hang out with us. Uh, so I got to meet him uh, and his wife and, and hang out and it was really um, incredible. And I you know, got to talk books with him and I felt like I have a lot of the same taste um, as him. And he became kind of a publisher himself with Zero Grand Press and uh, published one of the books Dustin mentioned last time or uh, two episodes ago on your show, which is uh, Panthers in the Museum of Fire of Jim Craig. I absolutely love that book as well. I think it's just impeccably well done. Um, so that's number two, Novel Explosives. Uh, if you haven't read it and you like stuff like, you know, what we're talking about here, Infinite Jest and um, Underworld and it's just so many other similarities, although parts of it are more um, 
plot driven, right? And it has a pretty exciting plot towards the end. Um, mm. All right, my number one, uh, no surprise, will be a David Foster Wallace novel. And last time I did this, I put The Pale King there. Today on your list, I'm putting Infinite Jest, just because I talked about Infinite Jest, and I feel like, um, you know, it is a desert island book for me. I would want to take it on a desert island. Uh, I love right now to probably really reread parts of The Pale King, but I don't know that I want to reread the whole thing of it. Um, there's, like I say, parts of it I really love, but uh, Infinite Jest is special uh, in a lot of ways, and it's it's an accomplishment. And um, you know, I wish that it it was not sort of shorthand for being a douchebag in the United States. But um, I'm I'm happy that uh, I got to read it before any of that. <laughs> And it was my, my first readings of it were not influenced by that. It was influenced by, I can't wait to go out and talk to someone about this. And that to me uh, is the sign of a good book. What a great list, Matt. Do you want to give us some of your honorable mentions? You got it. Um, one is a book that I just read this year for the first time. I never even heard of this author uh, named Anne Petrie, a book called The Street. And this book was published in, uh, again, the 1930s, 1940s in the U.S. It's Harlem. It's all set in Harlem. And I'd never heard of Anne Petrie or the Street. She was published by Library of America. I bought the book. A lot of other people had read this book in school. Um, and I would compare it to like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, Richard Wright, Black Boy. Um, but I actually love this book better than either one of those even. So I highly recommend if, if anyone is so inclined to read you know, realist fiction about race set in New York in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, you know, about the struggles of being a single mother, Anne Petrie, The Street, really fantastic book. Um, another one of my like new favorite books is this book by Brenda Lozano called Loop. And this book, uh, again, checks a ton of boxes for me, set in Mexico City. Um, a lot of it is about uh, kind of Homerian myth, right, of a Penelope waiting for Odysseus to return, but it's all modern day. It's, so it's a woman waiting for a boyfriend to get home. And in the meantime, she sort of wanders around the city and thinks about things, especially like finding the right notebook to write in. And that kind of shit. I love stationary pencils, as you know, and like that kind of stuff is like crack to me. So I, I loved that book. Um, I'll mention one more that I'm going to shut up, which is this crazy book that I've wanted to talk about to someone called Man into Wolf by Robert Eisler. And the subtitle is An Anthropological Interpretation of Sadism, Masochism, and Lycanthropy um, about werewolves. And the whole book itself is like maybe a 60 page essay with like 200 pages of endnotes. And Eisler himself was a art historian and sort of a polymath. He lived in Vienna and he wrote a book about the real Jesus. He wrote a book about global currency and testified before Congress. And then this last book he wrote in his life was about werewolves which was really influenced by Carl Jung the psychologist um, 
I don't know anyone else who's read this. There is a podcast about Robert Eisler that I discovered. The podcast um, is fantastic. Whole... I love that podcast. Oh, you know this? Do you uh, know this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Holy shit. I, I have never it, met anyone who knows this. But. I found it in a few months ago and listened to the whole thing, and then yeah, got the book. It is. Um, so you yeah. know this book? I can't believe it. I can't believe you know this book. I'm yeah. just like in shock right now. He, Holy shit! He was um, just such an interesting character. Like I listened to the podcast first, and then I had to go out and get the book. Have you talked to anyone about this? Like, no, you... no one else knows about this. <laughs> Holy shit! This is crazy. Yeah. So there, there was a guy. Uh, I forget his name. Brian something who wrote academic book just published um last year i think about first book about eisler and that's he's the one who made the podcast um but yeah i did the same thing i discovered the the podcast and got the book and i was like you know it's a really interesting question about you know primitive man being violent or not where does violence come from um you know what is the psychology behind um evil and that what we just write off a lot of really nasty stuff is saying well that's just pure evil uh, someone who goes and you know just decapitates their whole family they must just be evil and that's still a very primitive reaction you know as they were having in like the 12th century when someone would say oh they're turning into a werewolf well that's a very primitive reaction and he really gets into this psychology but yeah i I'm in shock right now that you know this book. The podcast is called A Square Peg, I think. A Square Peg, that's it. Um, so I'm glad we got to talk about it because I uh, was fascinated by this guy's life story. Um, a lot of it is him. He did serve time in Buchenwald and was in, he, he got out of a concentration camp and moved to Oxford. Um, it's really incredible. His life story would be an amazing, like, book or movie mm. um but but combined with his ideas um i'm i'm really i want to read more about him i'm fascinated yeah very interesting person i'd love to read more about him too um i gotta give a couple more honorable mentions one was on under the volcano dustin mentioned under the volcano i absolutely love this book uh, markson wrote a tremendous um book about under the volcano uh just like there are all these books about ulysses explaining all the illusions markson did that for under the volcano and so i would recommend if you want to read under the volcano um don't watch the movie albert finney's terrible john houston but the um the book markson did is really incredible and i based on that i bought this like two volume set of the letters of malcolm lowry uh which are you know he was an incredible correspondent just wrote tons and tons of letters um we haven't talked about Gerald Murnane yet uh I really like the the early Murnane stuff that we were you were sort of comparing to like Philip Roth like I think the one that I had was called something like a walk in the clouds which is like his Catholic boyhood right schoolboy stuff I actually like that better than the planes and stream system some of which can just be a little dry and boring to me and it's not as fun um as the childhood reminiscent stuff so I really like everything Murnane has written, um, but I get it while that, that earlier stuff was successful or popular. Um, I don't know what your take is on that. But. I, I kind of agree with you. I think that the, the further you go along with him, the less fun the books are. 
Um, and they may yeah. be they may be more brilliant books, but I think um, those earlier ones are just they're they're easier to get into. They're more plot driven. Yeah, and I think, like you said, you can see that his interest is there, right? Like, um, and I, you know, you can compare them to lots of other things, but it's still to me one of those really unique sort of uh, buildings roman, right? Like coming of age story of of a young boy. I think it's it's more memorable to me than some of the later stuff, which is very constrained and minimalistic. Um, I get it, but like you, as I'm, if I'm a reader, I just am honest about you know what my taste is there. I like the, hmm. the the kid hiding from his parents more than the like the grown up just like staring out at the fields. But, um, I really love this book, uh, Bluettes. Maggie Nelson. Do you know this book? Maggie no. Nelson has written all kinds of interesting books: hybrid fiction, nonfiction. Um, Bluettes is actually published by a poetry press called Wave Press, um, and it's about her obsession with the color blue, and it's written in little numbered fragments. Um, it's a lot more than that. Obviously, there's you know art history. There's her love life in there. There's um, you know just a mix of emotions, and to me, that's the best kind of art and writing that isn't really constrained by. Um, traditional genres and really creates its own form um and the markson books are a lot that way for me too before we wrap it up do you want to tell everybody where we can find you um sure i'm on twitter and instagram at matt booker if you want to follow me the concavity show is concavity show on instagram and twitter and you can also email me or Dave at concavityshow at gmail.com. Um, we actually love getting emails because it's to me easier to write an email than in, like an Instagram comment or a tweet. Uh, I, I don't know why, but I found myself tweeting a little less lately. Um, I don't know if I'm just getting burned out on, on Twitter or, or what, but um, as we said, I run an email list, so I love email. Uh, it's not going away. Um, can find me uh, I do have a website mattbooker.com it has some of my old clips some old writing is there um, I'll tell you another place you can find me which is on tumblr and I for the past 12 13 years have posted a screenshot from Google Street View every day on tumblr I am obsessed with Google Street View and finding new things in the world and traveling via Google uh, and I used to write for this website called googlesightseeing.com, um, but I keep it up by just posting on Tumblr. And so my Tumblr is buchr.tumblr.com. So a little play there on no E. Um, but uh, if anyone else out there loves Google Street View, email me so we can geek out on it. Um, there's also a great Google Street View game called GeoGuessr. Uh, I love playing GeoGuessr, creating my own maps there. So if you're into that, um, let's let's talk. Well, Matt, thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Zero. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Matt Booker for joining us. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter at Beyond Zero Pod, and you can email us on beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back for your next episode on Thursday. <laughs>